Our sermon text for this morning comes from the book of Matthew. Uh, it comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 48. Before we read the scripture this morning, why don't we pray together? Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, again for your word. Uh, We thank you for your truth, for the gospel. We thank you for your son, uh, for his coming into the world and and bearing sin. We pray that as we look at your word this morning that you would teach us, that you would teach us more and more about your son, our savior, uh, that you would teach us more and more about the life that you've called us to live. We pray that by your spirit you would open our hearts and soften our hearts and renew our hearts and draw us closer to you through our time together this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. 
You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, most of us have a kind of love-hate relationship with rules. On the one hand, rules tend to get in our way. Uh, I I recently started volunteering at the boys' school, and there was one morning that I needed to, to get in and talk to a teacher, and I tried to go into the school with my son, And his classroom was like 10 feet from the door. So I tried to go in so that I could talk to the teacher. And I was stopped and I was told I had to walk around to the other side of the school and come in a different door. And then I could go and talk to the teacher. Well, I wasn't very impressed with that rule at that moment. Not because it wasn't a good rule. It probably is a good rule. But because it got in my way. On the other hand, rules can be very comforting, right? It can make us feel safe to know that there are rules to cover our situation. It can make us feel good to know that we've kept the rules. Deborah and I recently started watching the show Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And one of the characters on that show, at one point, she says to another character, she said, I can't be a part of your bad girl shenanigans. I like following the rules and doing what's expected of me. It makes me feel nice. Uh, rules can be comforting when we keep them. And you see both of these responses in kids, right? I mean, one kid acts out every time he's told no, every time a rule is set down. Uh, Another kid gets his identity from always doing what mommy and daddy say, and even he gets a bit smug because he always keeps the rules. I think most of us do a kind of cost-benefit analysis when it comes to rules. There's this internal debate, right? Will it benefit me to break this rule, or will it make me look bad? Uh, Will it help me to keep up appearances if I keep this rule, or will it just get in my way? And in this sense, rule-keeping and rule-breaking are just two different sides of a self-centered self-interest. Christians have a special theological version of this debate, right? It it has to do uh, with our relation to the laws given to Moses at Sinai 3,500 years ago. Christians agree that God gave his people that law. Israel was to follow it. They were to obey God. But then Jesus came and he did certain things. He, He lived, he died, he rose, he purchased the forgiveness of sins for us. He redeemed us. That is, he bought us out from the law's curse and the law's condemnation. And so the question is, how does the work of Jesus affect our relationship to the law? Some say, hasn't changed anything, right? You still need to keep the whole law given in the Old Testament. Others say it's changed everything, right? Because we're now free from the law. We don't need to think about it anymore. We we certainly don't need to keep it. And then, of course, there are a million nuanced views in between there. Well, Jesus here in Matthew 5 directly addresses this question. He addresses the question of the place of the law. While he does that, he also addresses uh, two faces of our pride, and then he points us to perfection. So that's our outline for this morning, the place of the law, the two faces of our pride, and then pointing us to perfection. 
to the place of the law, right? Jesus has been teaching that uh, the kingdom, the kingdom of God, is not for those who have it all together, but it's for those who are poor in spirit. He's taught that the kingdom is not for those who have righteousness, but for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And anyone listening to Jesus in his day might have put two and two together and begun to wonder, is Jesus doing away with the law of Moses? Is Jesus doing away with the law of Moses? I mean, the Old Testament law was was very demanding. And the people in Jesus' day had it down to a science. They knew that there were 613 commandments in the law of Moses, that there were 248 positive commands and 365 negative commands. They, They knew the law and they knew its demands. And for Jesus to come along and say, the kingdom is for the poor in spirit, or it's for those who only hunger and thirst for righteousness, is he just tossing aside the whole Old Testament? Is he just getting rid of the law? And so Jesus responds to that question in verses 17 and 18. Verse 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus talks about the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets was just a common summary in Jesus' day for the, for the whole of the Hebrew Scriptures, the whole Old Testament. So Jesus' first response to the question Was he doing away with the Old Testament is this. He says, I didn't come to toss it aside, but to fulfill it. Now, fulfill is kind of a vague word. Uh, What does it mean for Jesus to fulfill the law and the prophets? Well, first, Jesus gives us some clue in verse 19 when he talks about the law being accomplished. He says the law is not going to pass away until everything is accomplished, until everything has taken place. So Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament in the sense of taking up and completing its story. And this is the way the word fulfill has been used throughout the Gospel of Matthew so far. You may remember uh, back in Matthew chapter 1, verse 22, we, we, we read all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Or Matthew 2, 23, something happens and it says that, w- that, was th- that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. So Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament in the sense of taking up and completing its story. The prophets foretold that completion, but Jesus is bringing that completion. But there's more than that because Jesus not only came to fulfill the story, but he also came to fulfill all righteousness. That's what he said back in chapter 3 when he was explaining why he needed to be baptized. He said said, "This, this is necessary in order to fulfill all righteousness. See, Jesus came to live a perfectly righteous life, to do the Father's will, to live by every word that comes from the mouth of God, right? To not put the Lord his God to the test and to worship and serve him only. That's what he said throughout Matthew so far. Jesus came and lived a perfectly righteous life on our behalf. He fulfilled every demand of the law down to every iota and dot, as he says, down to the the smallest letter down to the smallest stroke of a pen written in the law, Jesus came to fulfill it all. Well, Jesus came not only to complete the story and not only to fulfill uh, the law, to do what the law commands, but he also came to fulfill the demand for sacrifice. 
In, in fact, the Old Testament not only tells us that there is a certain way God desires us to live, but it also says that when we fall short of that, God requires restitution, right? Uh, breaking the law of an infinite God requires an equally infinite punishment. And so when Jesus says he came to fulfill all righteousness, he was actually talking, right, you remember, about his being baptized, Why was he baptized? He was baptized in order to identify with sinners in their need of repentance. So he he fulfills all righteousness by identifying with us as our substitute. He comes to take on our punishment for our law-breaking. Jesus comes to be our substitute, our sacrifice for sin. So Jesus comes to fulfill the law and the prophets by completing the story of the Old Testament, by obeying the law of the Old Testament, and by suffering the penalty of that Old Testament law. Notice what uh, chapter 5, verse 18 says. It says, nothing will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Now, uh, one commentator said about this uh, verse that the law remains valid until it reaches its intended culmination. That is, uh, this it has done, he goes on to say, in the ministry and teaching of Jesus. But fulfilling the law doesn't set it aside. Jesus just said he didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, right? And so another commentator puts it this way. If the law is fulfilled, it cannot on that account be set aside because fulfillment can only confirm the Torah's truth not cast doubt upon it. See, the fact that Jesus came to fulfill the law actually confirms it in its truthfulness. But what that means is, what Jesus is not saying that the Old Testament law should be set aside, he's saying that it has been fulfilled in him. Its continuing validity today is primarily in its pointing us toward Jesus. The law points us toward him. He's the one who came to fulfill it. Now, this passage that we're looking at this morning, it's going to go on to tell us uh, that it's going to go on to call us to live lives of righteousness. And if if we don't understand that Jesus fulfills the law, that he first fulfills the law on our behalf, that he completes the story, he, he lives the righteous life, he pays the debt that we owe. If we don't get that, as we grow in obedience, we're actually be tempted to think that God loves us because we're starting to have it all together. But remember, the kingdom is for the poor in spirit. God satisfies those who hunger and thirst. Jesus fulfills the law on our behalf. So if you belong to Jesus, what that means is, uh, in terms of your status with God, there is nothing you can do to be more righteous in your Father's eyes than you are right now. If he has fulfilled the law for you, if he has fulfilled all righteousness for you, there's nothing you can do to be more righteous in your Father's eyes than you are right now. Of course, what that also means, in terms of your status, there's nothing you can do to be less righteous in the eyes of your Father than you are right now. Because your righteousness is found in Him, fulfilling all righteousness for you. Now, if we stopped there, things would be simple. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He keeps going. He begins to address the place of the law in verses 17 and 18, but He continues doing that in verses 19 and 20, while also confronting our pride. And Jesus addresses two aspects of our, our, of our pride. First, he, he addresses our prideful rebellion in verse 19. Look at verse 19. It says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. See, Jesus says the commandments still matter. Every commandment. On one level, all has been fulfilled, but the character of God hasn't changed. So the will of God hasn't changed, right? God's moral will matters. In the scriptures, the whole of scripture is instructive for us. We need to listen to it and live in light of it. We must understand it in light of the coming of Christ, of course. Right? We don't, it doesn't, the Old Testament doesn't apply to us in the same way that it applied to Israel. Right? Because we are now in Christ. Christ has come. He's accomplished much of what the law pointed to. But that doesn't mean that, that the Old Testament is irrelevant. It means that we must do the hard work of trying to understand it in light of Jesus and then applying it to our own circumstances. Jesus is challenging us in verse 19 to take all of Scripture, including every commandment, seriously. And he says, those who do that will be called great in the kingdom. Those who take the word of God seriously will be called great in the kingdom. But those who ignore the Scriptures will be called least, he says. So Jesus is addressing our pride by saying, no, no, you, you, you need to follow God's word. He's saying the law is important. God's word does, not, does indeed set the agenda for our lives. We're called to obey, to submit ourselves to the word. But Jesus not only addresses our prideful rebellion by saying, look, God's word is important. You must follow it. He also addresses our prideful performance in verse 20. Verse 20 says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that's an an astounding statement in Jesus' day. It's astounding because the scribes and the Pharisees are the, the most religious people in that day. They're more religious than anybody else. These are the good people. Right? These are the people that everybody looks up to. They, these are the people that keep every single law. Right? These are the, these are the key people that everybody looks at and says, boy, I, I wish I could be like that. Think of the most law-abiding person you know who always follows the rules no matter what the cost. Right? These guys are better. They do it all. But Jesus says, your righteousness must exceed theirs. That's devastating. I mean, this is a huge blow to our pride, right? Because if these guys can't get in, what hope do I have, right? If if I do my best, I can't do what they're doing. And you're saying if I do my best, then I can never enter the kingdom. I've got to do better than the scribes and the Pharisees? I've got to do more? Well, actually, no. Uh, Jesus isn't saying you have to do more. That's not what he's saying. Uh, What he's saying is that the religious performance is not the kind of righteousness that God requires. Uh, We'll we'll get to why that is in a second. We'll, We'll unravel that. But for now, just soak it in, right? That religious performance is not the kind of righteousness that God requires. You may be someone who performs very well. Right? You may have always kept the rules. Uh, you may have always been a good little boy or girl. You may have always gone to church. You may always read your Bible and, and say your prayers. Or you're, you may be active in, in dozens of different social justice causes. But Jesus says, your righteousness is not enough. So Jesus, he addresses our, our rebellion by saying the law matters. You need to obey scripture. 
But he addresses our, our pride and our performance by saying all your religious acts, right, that, that religious people can muster, all the moral acts that moral people can muster, all of the social justice advocacy that social activists can muster, right, put it all together and it still isn't enough. That's frustrating, right? Because what that means is my best efforts at religion aren't enough. I mean, my, my righteousness must exceed the religious elites, uh, what does that even mean? Well, thankfully, Jesus tells us, right? He doesn't leave us hanging. Uh, he tells us, he explains what he means. He tells us our righteousness must exceed by, he shows us how, by pointing us to perfection. That's what he does. He, he, you know, why is it that if the law has been fulfilled in Jesus, and, and therefore the Old Testament law, as the Old Testament law is no longer binding as such, why is it that Jesus still calls us to keep the law? Well, because God has not changed. And the standard for God's people has always been God's character. I mean, think about it. There's this refrain in the Old Testament. You may remember it's repeated in the New Testament as well. That be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Well, the end of our passage this morning, verse 48, has something very similar, except it says be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Simple, right? Go and be perfect. Does that bother you? Right? Verse 48, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I think every time I read that verse, it bothers me. I think, it, it, you know, verse 20 says, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And verse 48 says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I think, I think that this irks us a bit. One, because when we hear the phrase, we think, when we hear that phrase, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, we think of perfectionism, right? We think of people who are perfectionists, people who are never satisfied with what they or others do, right? Perfectionism is not a good thing. Trust me, I know, it's bad. If Jesus is saying we should all be perfectionists, right, he's dooming us to a life of frustration and impossible standards, right? We also don't like this phrase because, you know, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect because we know we can't do it. I mean, we, we hear that. Jesus is literally telling us to go be like God. I barely live up to my own standards, right? Much less God's standards, right? Go be like God. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What's interesting, there, there, are, there are a couple points about this phrase that we need to think about. First is, Jesus couldn't have put it any other way. I mean, think about it. What would you have wanted him to put as, as the standard? Be a little better as your heavenly father is a little better. It, it just doesn't work, right? It doesn't have the same ring to it. Um, it, it, it. Jesus had, there's no other way he could have put it. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, right? If God is the standard, then, then the standard is perfection. But second, think about this. As we, as we read verse 48, we often get stuck on the word perfect, right? Uh, look at the rest of the verse, though. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus is calling us as sons to reflect our Father. The perfection he's calling us to is this, the perfection of, of children reflecting the character of their Father, and while you're thinking about that, consider this verse out of Hebrews. It's a verse about Jesus from Hebrews 5. It says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. 
Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That's kind of an odd verse because it says Jesus learned obedience and Jesus was made perfect. What does that mean? I mean, Jesus was always without sin, right, from the beginning. And yet Jesus in his humanity grew, right? He started as a baby. He grew physically. He started as a baby, right? He grew. He matured. Uh, We're told that he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man in the scriptures. Jesus grew. He grew into maturity. He matured as a son, You actually could, it's the same word uh, that's translated elsewhere as maturity is the word translated in Matthew 5.48 as perfection, right? So you could translate uh, Matthew 5.48 as be mature as your heavenly father is mature. Now that doesn't quite sound right to us either. It still sounds a bit weird, I get it. But, But the point is, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, as my disciples, as children of God, grow up and be like your dad. That's what he's saying. He's saying, grow up, mature, become perfect, and be like your father. Now, that doesn't make the standard any less weighty, right? It's not now easier. Oh, okay, now I get it. Now I can go be perfect. Like, no, it's not, it's not easier, but it does put it in context. And it's important to get this. The Sermon on the Mount in general is Jesus teaching us how to be children of our father, We're going to see this phrase about sons of God or children of the Father. We're going to see uh, the language of the Father, and most famously in the the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven. That comes up again and again in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching us what it looks like to be children of our Father. Discipleship, in other words, is sonship, right? That's what discipleship is. It's, It's being children of the Father and growing as children of the Father, and so Jesus is, is, is talking to people who are children of their Father in heaven, and he's saying, grow up to maturity. He's not saying you become a child by maturity, right? You don't become a child by maturing, right? You mature because you're a child and you're growing. You're not saved by your maturity, right? But because you're saved, now grow up in that salvation. That's what Jesus is saying here. Okay, what does that mean? What is this maturity that Jesus is talking about? What does it look like? Well, he says, our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Okay, how? How does our righteousness need to be different from that of the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, I'm going to very briefly at this point look at verses 21 through 47. I know it's a lot of verses, but I'm going to summarize it in three points. First, Our righteousness must be internal and not just external, right? That's what Jesus is getting at here. It's not just that murder is is a problem. Murder is a problem, but not just murder, but anger, right? It's not just this outward thing, murder, but it's anger. It's what's going on in my heart that's the problem. It's not just adultery that's the problem, but it's lust that's the problem, right? It's what's going on in my heart, what's going on in my mind, Maturity means striving not just for outward conformity to the law, but striving for inward heart change, right? That I need to change, not just change my actions. I do need to change my actions, but I need to change something more fundamental than that. I need to change my heart. That's maturity. That's what it looks like to grow as a Christian. So first, it means uh, righteousness must be internal, not merely external. Second, it must be sincere and not calculating, Sincere and not calculating. To be calculating is to say, uh, 
is to say my oath wasn't valid, right? I promised, but, you know, children would say, I crossed my fingers when I promised, you know? You know how kids do that, right? They make a promise, they cross their fingers behind their back, and they say, well, it didn't count. It didn't matter what I said because I had my fingers crossed, right? And, and you know, that, that's what we do. They say, I didn't pinky swear. You know, I just swore I didn't pinky. We had, they have different levels of oaths, right? And some are more binding than others. That's what, we, that's what the Pharisees were doing, and that's what we do at times, Right? We, 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 we're calculating. When, when we don't have a heart for the truth, uh, we need oaths and signatures and notaries to bind our words so that the rest of our words can be false. Right? That's why we need to take all of these oaths, right? Because, because we're not trustworthy. If we were trustworthy, we would never need to take an oath. Right? And we live in a fallen world and people aren't trustworthy, and so oaths are a part of that. Jesus, Jesus is not dismissing them as sinful. What he's saying is you need to have a heart for truth. So that you're always telling the truth. Calculating is when we do our best to maintain an appearance of law keeping, to keep it outwardly, even to the letter, but to be breaking it the whole time, right? To do our best to skirt around the intent of the law, right? Jesus is saying, no, you need to be sincere in your righteousness, not calculating, So this exceeding righteousness, right, this righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, this maturity, it looks like internal, not just external law-keeping. It looks like sincere, not just calculating law-keeping. And finally, it it is gracious, not exacting law-keeping, right? It means that even when you could exact justice, even when you have a right to hate somebody, right, you show mercy, Uh, Verse 44, Jesus talks about loving your enemies and praying for your persecutors. Jesus is saying, sure, you you may have good reasons to hate them, but I'm calling you to love them. You know, the scribes and the Pharisees, their righteousness was no good because it was an insincere facade, right, that knew nothing of God-like mercy. And and, an insincere facade of merciless righteousness is no righteousness at all. This is how, sadly, this is how uh, Christians are often perceived, and it's how religious people often are, isn't it? That, that we maintain an appearance of righteousness, and yet we're not very nice about it, right? We tend to jump on anybody who looks less righteous than we are. We have this harsh, critical, condescending self-righteousness that boasts because it has the appearance of religion. That's what Jesus is speaking against. No wonder he said your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Because that's right, that righteousness is what we call hypocrisy. And what Jesus is going to call hypocrisy in Matthew 23. Jesus is saying you must not have a hypocritical righteousness, but a heart righteousness. A righteousness that goes down to the core of who you are. Okay, so here's the, the big question, right? Where does that heart righteousness come from? How do we grow up? To salvation. How, how do we come to maturity? How do we grow in what Jesus calls perfection? Bearing the image of our Father in heaven. Well, what have we seen so far in Matthew? It comes from following Christ, who, who then makes us who he wants us to be. Remember he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He says, follow me and I will change you. So it comes from following Christ. Follow me and I will make you who you need to be. It comes from recognizing that we're poor in spirit. We don't grow out of that as Christians, right? We're we're poor in spirit. We come to God with our poverty. 
It comes from being honest about our failure. Jesus says in, in chapter 4, verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? We need to be honest. Rather than, rather than trying to build up an image of success, we need to be honest about our failures. Repent. Own up to them before God. And so we, we're honest about our failure, and then we run to Jesus, who is the only one who can change us. And, and do you notice here where, where, uh, where the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, this, this mere outward righteousness, actually hinders growth and maturity? It hinders it. It's not just a bad righteousness. It actually hinders true righteousness. Here's how, right? Because if your outward performance is pretty good and you think that's all that matters, right? I'm not going to be poor in spirit because, hey, I look pretty good. I'm doing pretty well. If my outward performance is good and I think that's all that matters, I'm not going to be honest about my inward failure. I'm going to ignore it. If my outward appearance is all that matters and I ignore the inward, I'm not going to run to Jesus to change me. Because everybody says, I'm a good person. Why do I need Jesus? If we ignore our hearts. So superficial righteousness can actually hinder true righteousness, the pursuit of a heart righteousness that Jesus offers. So Jesus the Son, he's the Son who comes to fulfill the law. And then he comes to make us sons who fulfill the law. He does that by pouring out his spirit on us, by enabling us by the spirit's power to obey the law, right? the spirit of adoption, the scripture calls him. And Jesus comes, he, he fulfills the law, he dies in our place, he pours out his spirit on those who by nature are poor in spirit to make us children of God who walk after the rule of our father. Remember the kingdom is renewing all things under the rule of God, we've said again and again. Do you hunger and thirst for the righteousness that Jesus describes here? Do you hunger and thirst to have not just your outward actions changed, but your heart changed? To be made into a person who is internally righteous, who is sincerely righteous, righteous so much that we love those who hate us and pray for those who persecute us like our Father in heaven does. Pursue Jesus, right? Our Father loved us, our, his enemy so much, he sent Jesus to bear our sin that we could be reconciled to him. Pursue Jesus. He will make you into who you need to be. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that you loved your enemies and you sent Jesus into the world to die for your enemies, for us, so that we, your enemies, might be reconciled to you. Help us, Father, to delight in your love seen in the cross. Change us by that love. Transform us as we gaze at Jesus, as we gaze at the cross, as we gaze at your love displayed there. Transform us into your image that we would be like you, our Father in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.